Good morning. So good to see you in person this week. Last week I was uh, preparing to go to worship. You know, it's a two-hour time difference in uh, Oregon when Keith sent me a selfie of all of you all. So that was a, <clears throat> a thrill. Good to see you uh, in real life this morning. I also went uh, last week to, to worship with um, about a thousand Africans in a giant ballroom in Portland. At the end of the service, one of the pastors, one of the bishops actually from Africa got up and he apologized to those who were worshiping here. He apologized for the brevity of the service. But he said, I know there's a lot of North Americans here. They're not used to the way we worship. So after three and a half hours, he pronounced a benediction uh, (laughs) from a very brief service. So Pastor Keith and I are guiding you through a sequence of teachings on the Psalms. Today we come to the 14th Psalm, and I pray that you'd allow me to read it, and I'll seek to read it well before you. Psalm 14 says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there is any who understand, any who seek God, All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread. For God is present in the company of the righteousness. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor. But the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Father God, your son, our pastor, Keith, comes to share the interpretation of this word. Let him, Lord, speak with the power and the presence of your voice, none other. Amen. work ahead of of us and of you and of the Lord, and we trust God's will will be done. And today's uh, psalm that we're going to look at, Psalm 14, you know, there there are many things, I think, that that play into what Mike said. And this is a psalm, really, that highlights uh, the two opposite extremes, godliness and godlessness. And and as Pastor Mike read that, you know, it made me think of, of, of our world that we live in. Did you know, though, that it's interesting, like in America, over 95% of people claim to believe in God. They claim the belief in God. Now, does that jive with your experience when you live in this world? Does it seem that this is a world, a culture, a, a, a country even, that where, where just in your everyday le- learnings and, and dealings with people, that 96 plus percent of people are godly? I don't even have that in my own life, it feels like, most of the time. It's, it's difficult. And, and this is a psalm that explains what leads to this and where it comes from and the nature of things, but yet is also an encouragement to us that in the midst of a godless generation or a godless culture or a godless world, that God is there for us. Last week we talked a little bit about that and, and how, you know, when you jettison this idea that God is the creator, that God is the author of creation and, and of everything that exists, what is left if you don't have that? And that's what we're going to push into today. 
So the, the first thing that I wanted to talk about with this is, is this beginning verse. He says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Godlessness, first of all, leads to foolishness. Okay, now that might sound like a harsh thing to say, but let's talk about that for a moment. I, I love what, the way the Apostle Paul puts this in 1 Corinthians 1.8. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I want you to think about this for a second in your own relationships, and your own conversations that you have with people who aren't believers in Christ, who aren't uh, really godly people, how do they understand you? How do they perceive your life and what you do with your time and your energy and your, your, your money and, and, and your love of God? You know, if you've ever talked to people like that in your life they, and, you, and you expose yourself to them, they, they sometimes will say to you, I don't understand why you Christians do what you do. Why do you give up? I mean, it's a beautiful day right now, isn't it? Why would you give up going out and doing whatever you want to do or, or this or that to go to church and sit there in a church with a bunch of hypocrites, right? I mean, people always want to beat up Christians and say they're a bunch of hypocrites, right? You know, or, or, or whatever it is. Why would you want to put your belief in this, this mythological view that there is a God? You see, when you get rid of, of, of God, what is left? And, and Paul reminds us that, look, this message that we have here of who God is and what Jesus has done and what the cross is all about, we have to remember it doesn't make sense out there. It doesn't make sense to people who don't get it. They look at the cross and they don't understand. You go into a Roman Catholic church and you see a, a, a crucifix with Jesus on the cross. You know, you come into a Protestant church, you see the cross is empty, but either way, it seems ridiculous to the rest of the world. They would say, well, why would a man have to die on a cross? What does that mean anyway? What's it all about? How barbaric, how ridiculous, how primitive. You see, that's the way the world looks at us. It's foolishness. And this is written to encourage us because sometimes we get upset when they make fun of us. Sometimes we get upset when, when they don't cheer us on, when they don't encourage us. We have to remember, if the world cheers us on, we're not doing something right. Because our message is the complete opposite of the world's message. This message doesn't make sense outside of the paradigm of, uh, of godliness. And here's why. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, The natural man does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, in our natural sense, a lot of what God tells us isn't going to make sense. Love your enemies? That doesn't make sense. Pray for those who persecute you? That doesn't make sense. Turn the other cheek? That doesn't make sense. Give and serve and volunteer? That doesn't make sense because the natural man is concerned with self. The natural man is all about self-preservation and self-promotion and the things of the cross and the things of God go completely contrary to that. So you have to remember that what we have here is a spiritual issue. And a person who's not enlightened by the Holy Spirit will not understand the true message of the gospel. 
And sometimes I think in our attempts to, to be culturally accepted, we will water that down a little bit until it comes down to a, a, a common denominator, which is just do good things and be nice, right? And we hope that that's enough, that the world will accept us. But I want to tell you this, the farther we push into this, the farther we go with it, the more we have to understand that we're going like this from the world's way. We have to. We have to do that because the things of God are contrary to the things of the world. The psalm writer says, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. It doesn't say the really educated, smart person says in his heart there is no God, but that's the way our world works, doesn't it? In our world, the smart people are the ones who know that really God is just a myth. In our world, it's the most educated people, the experts, the PhDs, the, the, the ones who know more than the rest of us, you know, primitive people. They're the ones that the world looks at as the experts, but that's not how God looks at it. 1 Corinthians one twenty five says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Foolishness of God. If there was such a thing, I think Paul's being a little bit facetious here. If there was such a thing of the foolishness of God, it would be smarter than the smartest human being ever made. You know, I remember my, my freshman year up at college, um, I, I went into this required course called Humanities One, which is basically an ancient world history course, you know. And the first day of the class, the professor assigned our reading for our first quiz which would be on Wednesday. The class was on Monday. I'm like, wow, this college is awesome. You only have class three days a week? Yes, so easy, right? So Monday's, Monday's reading for Wednesday was the entire book of Genesis and the entire book of Job for a quiz. And I'm like, I got this, you know? This is going to be great. This is a Bible study class. I know about Joseph. I know about Abraham and, and, and all this. I, I, I'm going to ace this, you know? Man, I did not. It was hard because it was all coming from a, a point of view that the material that we were reading and had read to study for this quiz is just a myth. That it's, it's, it's antiquated, primitive, and outdated, and one of many you know, ancient people's religious view that clearly has been disproven as false over the years. And I mean, that, just, that just rocked me. You know, because I, I knew I had teachers that believed like that in high school, but they certainly wouldn't teach that, right? They probably would today. But, man, it, it, it hit me. And these, you know, it's intimidating when you go in there as a, as a young person and you hear these, these experts, these scholars that want to explain to you all of these views that go against what you were taught in VBS, Right? They go against what you were taught in Sunday school or at summer games or in confirmation. And you think, well, wait a minute. That's what I learned growing up. But now these smart people are telling me all this stuff. And we're paying a bunch of money to go here. So they must be right. It's, it's how a lot of people lose their faith. Because they're taught by smart people. But the Bible says, no, they're not smart people. They may be smart from the world's perspective. But in, in the grand scheme of the truth... They've lost it. Because when you get rid of God, what do you have left? You see, you can't have godliness or godlessness and, you know, truth. Because God is truth. There's truth that comes from God. There, apart from God, there is no truth. 
So you can't be a, a, a person who represents the truth very accurately if you deny that God is real. If you take God out of the picture, what you're left is not the, with is not the truth. So it doesn't matter how smart someone claims to be. What this psalm is teaching us is if a person doesn't have God as their foundation for truth, then they're already way off course in terms of the way that the world works, the universe, our place in it, and how we came to be. And of course, that's just the beginning. According to this psalm, godlessness leads to some other pretty horrible things, doesn't it? First of all, it leads to, to corruption. He says they are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. Understand this, you get rid of God, what you have to move into is corruption. Listen to what Timothy said, uh, Paul writes to young Timothy. He says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. We're going to stop right there for a second. Now, doesn't, to me, I don't know about you, that sounds a lot more like the world that we live in today. Doesn't it? I mean, that's our society. That's our culture. That is where we come from. We are lovers of self. We are lovers of pleasure over other than lovers of God. We are boastful. We have no self-control. We're unforgiving. I mean, this describes our culture to a T. And this was written 2,000 years ago in the time of the Apostles. Godlessness leads to corruption. When you take God away, this is what you wind up with. And I would just propose to you, that's where we are. And sadly, that's not just where we are out in the godless world. That's oftentimes where we are even in the church. Even within our own denomination, even within other denominations. This is where we find ourselves, people. Having a form of godliness, we kind of look like people who are sort of godly but denying its power. Man, I tell you what, it makes my heart just sick into my stomach when I hear people that have this form of godliness deny the real power of God. Because there's a lot of people that claim to believe in God that don't have a lot of hope in God. There's a lot of people that claim to believe that God is this and God is that, but they don't believe that God can deal with them in their life. They don't believe that God can forgive them. They don't believe that God can transform them. They don't believe that God can restore them. So even though they may look godly in some sort of weird form, the rest of their experience matches up to this godlessness. It's been corrupted, you see. But this is not a new thing that's happening to us. This was even happening during the life of the apostles. Let's continue with verse 6. Timothy's talking about some, some very specific things here. He says, they are the kind, and he's talking about the people that deny this power of God, who worm their way into homes. That's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? They worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers, 
Wow, notice that? They're teachers. They're teachers. They're not just random people. They oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as their faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far as in the case, because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Wow. This is what was going on in the early, early days of the apostles. We can't expect that we're going to be any different, right? We can't expect that. Because this is what happens. People who have jettisoned their belief in God and have denied the power of godliness in their life have become corrupt. And then what does that corruption seek to do? It seeks to spread. It seeks to infiltrate. It seeks to, to, to propagate itself to others who are not in that position. So there's this, there's this worming in. This worming in to oppose the truth. Pastor Mike talked about the need that we must have because it is a, it's a Christ-like thing, to carry both the love of God and the truth of the gospel together. See, we must have both. We must have the love of God and the truth of the gospel at the same time. And what the world will get you to try to do is to, to take one over the other. And they will tell you that you can't have both at the same time. But that's exactly what Jesus did. You see, if you have, if you have love but no truth, then you wind up with whatever you feel like at the moment. Because, you know, love is kind of a squishy word, isn't it? It can mean various things at different times to different peoples. And basically, if you really boil it down, oftentimes what the definition of love is, is whatever you want it to be. Just don't make me mad. Just don't tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. Just don't tell me that, that you know, I need to change. How many of us have had our lives pretty devastated because we weren't willing to change? Right? How many of us have seen people in self-destructive patterns all around us and no one's willing to say anything because we love that person and we don't want to make them mad? Right? See, if you hold love with no truth, it's pretty dangerous. But now what happens if you hold truth with no love? Right? That's just as dangerous, isn't it? Because you've all seen people who walk around, you know, holding on to a book, you know, like this. This is the hymnal. Pretend it's the Bible. Maybe it's the hymnal. I've never seen anybody hit anybody over here with a hymnal before. Maybe in some really traditional places. But you've seen people walk around with a Bible and just thump people with it and say, the Word of God says this and the Word of God says that and, 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 and have done so in an extremely unloving way. That's not a good thing to do. Jesus spoke against that repeatedly. He came with both truth and love. You've got to have both. You've got to have truth and love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and restoration and godliness and purity. It all goes together, you see? But when you jettison godliness, this is what you wind up with, corruption. You also wind up with abuse and exploitation. Because once you let go of this idea that every human being is created in the image of God and you can dehumanize another person and for whatever reason you want to, then it becomes acceptable for you to exploit or abuse them. You see, when you corrupt your understanding of who God is, you corrupt your understanding of who another person is because the scripture tells us that we're all created in the image and likeness of God. That means that every person you run into, as we talked about last week, is created in God's image and is precious to God and is special to God and, as our denominational language says, is of sacred worth. 
right? There's no better way to put that. Every person is of sacred worth, not just human worth, of sacred worth. There are a lot of people in this world who don't feel like they have any worth to anybody else, but they have worth to God. They have worth to God. But when you jettison the godliness, now you can easily jettison the sacred worth and abuse and exploitation follow. This is what was happening even in the days of of the apostles. James writes this in his chapter, chapter 5 of his letter to the church. He says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. The writer of Proverbs says it this way, Do not exploit the poor because they are poor, and do not crush the needy in court, for the Lord will take up their case and will exact life for life. You see, when you jettison godliness, it's going to happen that you will begin to exploit other people. But God, the psalm writer tells us, is three things for us when that happens. See, this psalm, Psalm 14, is an encouragement to those of us who are trying to live godly lives, who do put our hope and trust in the Lord, that even when we're surrounded in this godless world by godless people, that God will do three things for us. And the first thing that God has promised in this psalm is this, to be present. He's promised to be present It says, but they are there overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. Even in the suffering, even in the persecution, God is present. I love the way that it's put in Psalm 46. Then uh, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. He's there with us as we walk through this world, as we deal with those who would hurt us and exploit us, as we deal with those who are corrupt. God is there with us. And of course, in Matthew 28, our mission comes from these verses where Jesus uh, comes to them and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus has promised not just this, this, this command to go out, but he's also promised that as we go into this world, as we go to do ministry in these corrupt places to godless people, God has promised that in our mission, He is there with us. We are not left alone. We are not sent out without Him by our side. So whatever trouble you may find yourself in, whatever situation where you might be surrounded with godlessness all around you, recognize this, that Jesus is there with you. You don't go at it alone. God has also promised us that he would be our refuge. A refuge is a safe place. A refuge is a place where you can be protected. Psalm 147 says that he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I love that image of God. Psalm 91 verse 4 says he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield 
and your rampart. God is faithful. He's promised to be our refuge. He's promised to be that safe place for us when we're surrounded by those who would seek to exploit or abuse us. And lastly, Psalm 14 explains to us that God restores His people. He restores us. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Of course, this is the famous Psalm 23. Many of us need, after living our lives or being in these situations, uh, we need to be refueled. We need to be restored. And that's what God has promised to do for us. One of my personal favorite verses is Joel 2.25, where God promises the people, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locust and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. This was written to a people who had been decimated by, godly, by godlessness. They'd been decimated from godlessness within themselves and from godlessness around them. And they had had so much taken away from them because of that. But God promised to bring it all back. And I can tell you, he will do that for you. He can and He will. No matter how you find yourself, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what's happening, if you turn to God, He can restore these things to you. So ultimately, what are we supposed to do? How to become godly? Psalm 14 tells us it's about three things. And these all come from that text. And the first one is this. Seek after God. He says, there's no one who seeks me. So if we want to become godly, we must seek after God. We seek after so many things, don't we, in this world? The psalm writer informs us, if you want godliness, seek after God. I love the way Isaiah puts it. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. You know, that's good news, isn't it? It's good news that... that in that midst of corrupt godlessness, that anyone can turn to God at any time and God will respond, not with wrath and vengeance and fire, but with love and mercy and pardon. I love that he says that. He will freely pardon. If only we would turn if only we would let go of that sin that has corrupted us, that godlessness that has infiltrated us and that has, has told us that we're not who God made us to be. We would turn, God promises, to pardon. But we must seek the Lord for that. Jesus said, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. What are these things? They're the things that we worry about so much in life. The things that all of us North Americans are doing while the Africans are still worshiping. All those things that we're seeking during all that time. That's what Jesus says. Don't worry about all that. Seek me first. Maybe that's why the African church is growing so fast, Pastor Mike. Maybe that's why they're going to outnumber us in such a short amount of time. Is because while we're out chasing God knows what, they're chasing God. Amen? We could learn a thing or two from that. Secondly, Secondly, do good. Do good. The psalm tells us there's none who do good. We need to do good. We need to, to not just have these great thoughts in our mind, but we need to take them out into the world and do what Jesus calls us to in the name of Jesus because we love Jesus. 
He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one, check this out, who does the will of my Father in heaven. He didn't say only the one who knows stuff. He said only the one who does stuff, but you have to do it for the right reason, because he goes on to say, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, you can know God's will intellectually and still do evil at the same time. you got to do good. you got to do good. And then lastly is this. Psalm says that we need to grow in knowledge. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek God, the Lord, understand all those things. See, evil men are not interested really in justice. They're interested in self-promotion and self-preservation. But it is the Lord who understands and then lastly, from Second Peter, here's what he promises us if we truly seek the Lord. For if you possess these qualities and continue to grow in them, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we have this mission to step into, which we do, knowing that God's promised to go with us, we need to be continually growing in knowledge. We need to be continually seeking the Lord and living our faith out and watching what God does in us grow and spread. That's a promise from God. If you've ever felt ineffective and unproductive in your faith, hey, you know what? Line up with Jesus. Keep growing, keep searching, and keep doing, and watch what God does. Let's go ahead and pray right now. Jesus, I thank you for uh, this psalm, God, and for the work that it means to our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you'd help each of us to turn from whatever it is that we've been seeking, Lord, and, and, and follow you with all we have, that, Lord, we might be godly in the midst of a godless culture, Lord, that we might honor you and that we might seek you with our whole heart. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.